Hey, gang, this week's episode is brought to you by the Arizona Office of Tourism. This spring, follow your favorite baseball teams to Arizona for Cactus League spring training. Amazing weather and landscapes, exciting outdoor adventure, incredible food. Arizona is the perfect home base for baseball fans. Plan your spring training getaway at visitarizona.com slash spring training. Yes, that's visitarizona.com slash spring training. And now here's our show. Houston in the late 70s was very much cowboy hat, cowboy boots, ghillies, and love you boots. My name is Dan Pastorini. I'm the former quarterback for the uh, Houston Oilers in the Love You Blue years. Friday, Saturday nights, you could shut down the city, probably the state, for football. I mean, businesses locked up. You wanted to get gas too bad. They were all in the stadium. Texas football is a religion. Football is king, period. Have you ever heard of a team called the Houston They're a soccer team, weren't they? Women's football team. No, I can't say as I did. Members of the 14-team National Women's Football League, founded in 1974 with seven teams, and in 1976 placed a franchise in Houston, the Hurricanes. It was full contact football. Getting them popular. Knocking the crap out of each other. My name is Rose Kelly. Just a tackle. My name's Gwen Flager, and I was quarterback. Was a time or two where you know you get your bell rung. Holy smokes, where am I? Kind of stunning (laughs) the first time you land on the ground. All I wanted to do was knock the crap out of her, you know. Make them ears ring. That enthusiasm didn't end until the last second of the game. We practiced Monday through Friday, and everybody worked, like I said, their full-time jobs. I was working at the post office at a grocery store. And I was a parole officer. Some were married, some were not. Somebody was a welder, a banker, was in law, and there was an exotic dancer on there, too. Some brought their children, women from all walks of life. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available. A curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Hey, gang, what is going on? How you doing? My name is Tim Hanlon, and I appreciate you finding our little show this week and every week, for that matter, here at our little uh, little station. We call Good Seats Still Available. It's our little uh, our little pinpoint in the universe, and uh, we obsess uh, weekly about Teams and leagues no longer with us for whatever various reasons. Uh, the, the umbrella we like to call what used to be in professional sports. Uh, I appreciate your coming by. And uh, this week we uh, deliver a treat for you. Uh, and we love, 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 love finding uh, stories uh, about teams or leagues or, or both or situations, frankly, that the people just not only just out and out just forgot. But frankly, maybe I didn't even know knew about the the time it actually occurred. Uh, and there's plenty of things out there that I I'm just amazed that for whatever reason I never even knew about. And I you know fancy myself as being somewhat obsessive about this stuff. But uh, you know that's why we get up in the morning. We uh, we like to learn new things, and it's uh, never a day goes by where we don't learn something new. 
And uh, and this episode is uh, is absolutely chock full of of nuggets of information and delightful storytelling uh, with our pal, our new pal, Olivia Kwan, the guest this week. She is a filmmaker, producer, uh, documentarian in the Los Angeles area, does a whole bunch of stuff in, in the, uh, the film industry. And it has been her passion uh, for the last number of years uh, to put together a film uh, about the topic that we're going to delve into today. And that is the, uh, the movie is called Brick House, and it's the uh, subtitled The Story of the Houston Hurricanes. And Hurricanes is spelled H-E-R-R-I-C-A-N-A-S. And as you got a sense from a little bit of the teaser at the top of this little show, this movie is all about something known as the National Women's Football League, which uh, was in the uh, in its prime, if you could call it that, in, in the 1970s and very early 1980s. And it it may have escaped your uh, your knowledge bank, especially if you were not in one of the uh, the markets. Uh, but uh, if you might remember, not only the Houston Hurricanes, but teams like the Dallas Blue Bonnets, or perhaps uh, the Los Angeles Dandelions. Uh, probably the most famous team in the NWFL uh, back in the 70s, a team called the Toledo Troopers. We get into, you know, some of all of that stuff, but uh, the reasons and the the stories behind it uh, are, are fascinating. Olivia's uh, mom, actually, Basha, played uh, for this team called the Houston Hurricanes. And if the name Hurricanes, Houston Hurricanes, uh, sounds familiar, especially if you were a fan uh, of the old North American Soccer League, well, interesting little tidbit. The uh, fledgling uh, National Women's Football League, when they awarded the franchise to Houston uh, in uh, 1976, uh, actually went to court uh, with the uh, then Houston Hurricane, singular, of the North American Soccer League, which started uh, in earnest in 1978, I believe, uh, for a copyright infringement. And I think uh, ultimately it was settled by uh, a district judge there in Texas uh, in March of 78. Uh, basically uh, denying the Hurricanes NWFL team, uh, you know, a judgment for them because they uh, he the, the judge basically decided that uh, they were two different teams in two different leagues in two different sports. That said, though, as you heard in that little clip, Dan Pastorini, Houston Oiler uh, pro extraordinaire, even confused uh, this idea of the Houston Hurricanes National Women's Football League team with that of an off-forgotten soccer team in that that regard. At least he remembered that, right? But it's interesting how people don't remember this, but it, but how fascinating a story uh, women in the realm of pro football. And we're talking real stuff. We're not talking powder puff stuff. We're not talking uh, that lingerie football league, whatever the hell that was. Uh, we're talking real honest-to-goodness uh, helmet-to-helmet pads and tackle, you name it. It's the real Magilla of pro football. And you can, uh, you'll understand uh, pretty quickly when we get into the story uh, with Olivia in just a few moments about why women during that period of time, and frankly, even, even since uh, have been fascinated by the game of pro football, both as fans, but even in those sort of uh, interesting glimpses and opportunities to actually play the game on the field in full contact form. Now, uh, arguably it's a niche still, uh, in today's uh, uh, day and age, there there are uh, a few leagues sort of out there, mostly of the semi-pro variety. And as you'll hear in our conversation with Olivia, uh, the NWFL was certainly very much that of a semi-pro kind of existence. But that said, it was, honest to goodness, professional franchise team football for women. And it's a fascinating story as to how these ladies got interested in it 
how they decided to to take uh, a part in it, uh, the sacrifices that they made, the uh, the dual lives that they had to leave, right? Leave because uh, they, you know they could, obviously we're not going to be able to live on playing pro football. It's an interesting confluence for sure. And this National Women's Football League, if you remember, teams like not only the Houston Hurricanes, but how about the uh, Fort Worth Shamrocks, perhaps the Los Angeles Dandelions? Uh, the most famous team uh, is uh, probably known uh, to be the uh, Toledo Troopers, uh, who uh, were quite successful uh, and stand out. The Oklahoma City Dolls, very interesting rivalry with the Hurricanes. And these are, you know, you may just have missed this uh, if you were sleeping a little bit in the uh, mid to, to late 1970s. But it's an interesting confluence, uh, not only the, this league and why and how, but also uh, things around Title IX were sort of you know percolating uh, at this time, right? Uh, you had uh, not only the, the the women's liberation movement and uh, uh, you know the idea of the Equal Rights Amendment and all that stuff, but but Title IX was clearly making inroads in in, in gains for women in uh, leveling the playing field for, for for sports, not only the pro variety but also the collegiate level as well as in high school, et cetera. You had uh, this decade of the seventies was was a, a fertile one for all kinds of leagues, challenger as we've talked about on this show with lots of different sports, a variety as well as, frankly, just brand new sports altogether, like, say, the major indoor soccer league, right? Indoor soccer was literally a, a wholly created uh, uh, sport, really kind of a derivative of the outdoor game. And uh, the entrepreneurialism around pro sports around that time, all of that stuff, plus the fact, in this case, the Houston Hurricanes uh, being domiciled, uh, as were a number of uh, franchises, by the way, in this league, uh, in Houston, Texas, right? Texas being uh, arguably still the the cradle of of football. They're football crazy in Texas for sure, on on a whole different you know bunch of levels. Uh, so it doesn't really make a whole lot of. Uh, it's not curious, frankly, to really kind of understand how, uh, given the opportunity, how women of a, of a certain interest might actually find the idea of playing professional football uh, tantalizingly interesting. And we're going to get into sort of the, the whole rhyme and reason of the Houston Hurricanes, the National Women's Football League, and all of that uh, in the 70s, uh, in the Title IX era of life uh, in the United States, uh, and all of the other sort of uh, idiosyncrasies and uh, intangibles that come along with this fascinatingly interesting story, and one that uh, was a complete revelation to me, with our guest, uh, Olivia Kwan coming up in just a few moments. And again, the name of the, the movie that she's putting together is called Brick House, the story of the Houston Hurricanes. And uh, you can follow along uh, the development of this movie by going to brickhousefilm.com. Uh, and we'll give you all the social media stuff uh, a little at the end of the show. But uh, it, it's a great story, fun. And Olivia is just a delight. And uh, a couple of seconds away from uh, delivering that uh, wonderful interview to you. Uh, coming right up. But before we get there, though, of course, uh, we want to uh, give you a, a shout out uh, to our friends at Streaker Sports, the purveyor of sports culture. And we love Streaker Sports for a whole bunch of reasons. But the reality is that we talk about so many great sports and leagues and teams no longer with us. And uh, we're, we're constantly looking for ways to memorialize and commemorate all of those. Uh, and what better way than to show your pride, your memories uh, and your, uh, shall we say, borderline obsessions uh, with all of these teams. And frankly, the great logos as well that come along with that. If you're a, a geek for defunct leagues like yours truly, and you know who you are. Well, I got to tell you that StreakerSports.com is your central headquarters for some of the best 
and most comprehensive offerings uh, in T-shirt and other garb form. Hey, if you were a fan, say, of the World Hockey Association, how about the World Football League? Were you a fan of the North American Soccer League? How about the American Basketball Association? What about the major indoor lacrosse league, the original version of what is now the NLL? Uh, How about roller hockey international or for God's sakes, even pro beach hockey? My God, all of those leagues and more are available for you to purchase a T-shirt at streakersports.com. And we've got a promo code for you. It's good seats, good seats. That's a promo code, 10% off all of your purchases. And I'm telling you, these are the, uh, the most comprehensive set of quality uh, shirts that you're going to find on the interwebs of teams uh, and leagues uh, from all over those places and then some. Look, there's also sports culture collections that they put together beyond just the defunct league stuff. Hey, you're a big fan of Bill Raftery and you get a, getting all ready for the, uh, the, the March Madness thing coming up? Well, you know his signature phrase is onions. And we're not going to into like why he says onions, but you could, as they say, look it up. But look, there are there must be at least a dozen and a half shirts devoted to the onions trademark that Bill Raftery has done. And it's an awesome way to celebrate college hoops this uh, this coming March and April by finding uh, one that that you love the most at streakersports.com. Hey, you a big fan of the movie Slapshot? They got a nice collection of stuff from that movie. Hey, how about the uh, Miracle on Ice from 1980, the actual uh, U.S. hockey Olympic team and their uh, stunning victory from 40 years ago. Uh, they have a, uh, a licensed and trademarked collection of shirts featuring some of the great players uh, from that team and that that, that magic time uh, in uh, U.S. Uh, sports history. You're a fan of Caddyshack. They got you covered there, too. There's a whole bunch of stuff. The Mighty Ducks, for God's sakes. All of that stuff and more at StreakerSports.com. Defunct sports, sports culture, you name it. It's all there, and it's a, it's a hub of excitement. You will uh, love uh, the wear and the uh, the stuff that they've got at streakersports.com. And again, the promo code is good seats. And you're going to get, again, 10% off all of your purchases. Visit there early, visit there often. And we thank our friends at streakersports.com, the purveyor of sports culture. All right, let's get into now some other sports culture, some hidden sports culture, if you will, uh, something that we didn't know about and we learned a whole lot about from our new pal, Olivia Kwan. And here we go. We're going to get into women's professional football yeah the real deal the national women's football league and the story of the houston hurricanes and here's our chat that we had with olivia just a couple of weeks back enjoy your professional trade is in the is in the movie making or doc business or were, what's your sort of uh, raison d'etre professionally so to speak and maybe we can start with that to get into the bigger story, yeah. bigger story. well my uh my is a I'm a cinematographer in Los Angeles and I work as a, a DP on scripted feature films for the most part. So um, I have done a few docs as a DP, but uh, generally it's the narrative world that I live in. And this uh, this documentary, I sort of decided to do it um, because my mom played for the Houston Hurricanes, and uh, I guess I at some point realized that somebody needed to make a movie about this. And, um, and then later on, I realized that maybe that person should be me. So that's how this sort of came to be. And uh, it's been a year long journey so far, and it's been very fulfilling. And I've learned a lot about not only filmmaking, but in the Houston hurricanes, but also myself and 
my mother, and it's been it's been an amazing experience. Well, I, I do want to get into the mechanics of that, but let's uh, let's maybe kind of start from sort of the the sort of the beginning, and I guess that's childhood, then, right? Yeah. How does this uh, uh, Houston Hurricanes National Women's Football League, this idea even of professional football in the realm of female play, right? Which it seem itself seems even yeah, especially in the seventies, even just just a, a complete uh, left field proposition. How does this hit mm-hmm. your radar as a kid? Like, how much of you was aware of what was sort of going on? Your mom was uh, doing, and 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 maybe a little bit of sort of what what was going through your head. Uh, maybe set the scene for us, I guess. Yeah, well, my mom actually um, the uh, league ended before I was born, so I never actually saw my mom play football. But uh, as kids, you know, she would take us out to the street and throw football around, do like a few moves. And honestly, you know, being a kid, I didn't think that this was anything unusual or I didn't realize it was anything unusual because it was just the thing we did. We went out and played. Um, And it wasn't until much later in life, probably like moving into junior high or high school, that I started to realize that uh, not everybody's mom played football. (laughs) And uh, when I started telling people that my mom played football, they would sort of be in disbelief and they would say like, I've never heard of that or um, whatever. So, you know, growing up, it really wasn't a thing at all for me. It was um, just when I was moving into adulthood that it started to be like, oh, wait, this is, this is something of note. But it was, a, we, we always had fun. It was a great experience. Um, I didn't play football myself, but my parents took great pains to enroll my sister and I in soccer. And they uh, went out of their way to make sure it was co-ed soccer, um, just so that we were on a level of competitiveness that um, would prepare us for the world as a whole. How does this come up in your conversation with your mom? Like, how do you... How, how does this sort of, hey, your mom's pretty good at, at throwing the ball around. How does it, <laughs> how does it leak out? Because we just we're doing an episode this week on the um, one of our uh, various episodes on the All American Girls Professional Baseball League from the '40s, and it's a long sort of trail of I'm going to call it reluctance. Uh, maybe it's modesty. You know, a lot of uh, uh, you know progeny of these of these ladies that you know they, they didn't even know, or it was sort of accidental that they found out that they're their moms or, or their, you know, their relations actually played pro ball and they, they were not sort of trumpeting it from the, from the rooftops. Right. How does it spill out? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, when I was little, I remember my mom telling us little stories here and there, just like sort of sprinkled throughout the years about uh, the times when she played for the team, but it wasn't like the story wasn't, Hey, I played professional football. <laughs> it was always like, I remember this one time when my football team and I, we did this one thing, uh, that kind of stuff. And it, honestly, it wasn't through her that I first was like, wait a second, you play professional football. It was through other people. You know, when I, would mention these stories to other people, they'd be like, wait, what? Your mom played football? Like football, football, like not soccer. And so um, then after that, that's sort of when I went to my mom and said, hey, so uh, tell me more about this team that you played for. And uh, it, it, again, it wasn't, you, as you said, it was sort of, I don't know if it's a modesty thing, but I think it just, it just doesn't cross your mind to announce your past life to people you know it's I, I used to be a violinist I'm not just walking around telling everybody hey by the way I used to be a violinist <laughs> um, uh, so I think it's just a matter of 
you know, she's moved into her new life. Her new life involves her career, which was interior design. It involves her family, her children, and all of that. Um, and it's just sort of something from the past that not she didn't forget about, but it just it's it's a shadow at that point. So it, it doesn't really come up in uh, in initial conversation. So was she reluctant? Was she were you uh, uh, you know uh, endlessly inquisitive? Uh, was she kind of like go away, kid? You bother me. Uh, what was the dynamic? <laughs> of that discovery period no she's she's always been very um forthcoming about the experience i mean at this point it's sort of a matter of what she still remembers because it was 40 years ago and it's tough getting people to remember things from that long ago but um no she's she was once once the conversation got going she was happy to share as many memories as she could the I think she was probably a little reluctant to do this documentary. Um, I, she's not really one to be on camera in the public eye or anything like that. Um, but uh, I think she also sees the value in sharing this story because it's such an amazing story about um, people who did something that had never been done before and uh, overcoming the fear of failure. And, you know, even, even though the, their team only lasted four years, it was still a massive accomplishment and i'm very proud of all of them for it and including my mother well i do want to get into sort of the again the the, the sort of the the specifics and the granules of, of getting this, this film underway and and uh, in process but but before that though i want what in your conversations with your mom before even this documentary process began that you could discern from either herself or other folks that you might have sort of come into contact with before this doc process is why? Why were they playing, uh, let's call it pro football versus other activities? What was it about football? Was it the time? Was it the region? Was it the Texas mad culture of football? Was it uh, there weren't any other sports that they were interested in? Like, what was it that you could discern in that early sort of stage as to like why they were gravitating towards football and even that of a pro variety? Yeah. Well, most of the women were already athletic, like they were playing softball, they were playing basketball, they were doing all kinds of other sports. And football has always been like the holy grail of sports when it comes to Texas sports. Um, and, you know, growing up in Texas, people just they live and breathe football. It's just in their veins. And uh, girls are never have never been allowed to play at that point. And. So they always wanted to play, but never really asked the question, why aren't we allowed to play? And so then when this idea came up um, that it was possible, they all sort of jumped to the opportunity, even though none of them had any experience whatsoever. But it, they just literally wanted to play football. Um, and, you know, through through going a little bit deeper into it, football is a very unique game. It's very much about strategy and it's the ultimate team sport where everyone sort of has to think at the same time and on the same level, um, you know, in, in basketball, there can be like an all-star who sort of runs the court on their own and gets the slam dunk. But in football, if one person messes up, the whole system falls apart. So there's something about football that makes it unique, that makes it interesting and appealing to people on a team level. Um, there's also, you got to understand that that time, uh, Title IX had just passed in 1972. So the realm of girls in sports in general was opening up on a massive scale because of that. And um, 
this this sort of just fell in line with that pattern. So it wasn't just football that was arising. It was, um, you know, softball was getting bigger and basketball was getting bigger, bigger. All these sports were increasing their female interest at that time. And, uh, you know, why not football? Just joined the ranks. Well, there's also another interesting angle of this, and this it's only through the discovery process of this silly little program over the last couple of years is is the 70s in particular uh, were also sort of a uh, a wellspring of let's call them challenger leagues uh, to the current establishment, uh, the the beginnings of of leagues and even sports or or its takes on sports like indoor soccer or or professional women's basketball, right? As professional endeavors, right? The, the entrepreneurialism uh, in the realm of pro sports was probably very fertile at that time. And so in many respects, the idea of a professional, quote unquote, or, you know, with or without the quotes, uh, women's football league, especially that probably in regions where football generally was gigantic, like in Texas, didn't seem to be that far removed from reality. Or yeah, for sure. Well, uh, another thing that I've come to find um, in researching that time period is that Houston itself was a very new city. Like it was basically becoming a big city after being a small town for the previous part of its history. And that was because of the oil boom, because of a number of reasons. But generally it was seen as like the, the Detroit of the South. It was not a cool place to be. It was industrial. It was grungy it was not it was not sexy and um they felt that attitude coming from all over the country you know the people of houston knew that they were looked down upon and they didn't like it so in houston at that time a lot of new things were like popping up just to try and like build character and create this cultural identity that hadn't been present before not not so much as like a screw you to the um to the establishment, as you say, the, the, the uh, people in the East Coast or the people in Dallas or whatever, but it is there. Was, there's a lot of like well-established things, like the NFL and all of the um, sports entities that were existing before then. And um, Houston wasn't necessarily welcome with open arms to that kind of thing, so they started making their own things, um, and that was kind of the the birth of the Houston spirit at that time. Yeah, that's interesting because it's also sort of a uh, it's another sort of tangent that's what we've got the, the idea of either in this particular case or generally the idea that pro sports, for example, having a franchise, an established professional league as a almost as a, a you know as a guarantee of of professional top tier city status, right? And and, and frankly, uh, uh, many businessmen generally trying to sort of fall over themselves to get. Uh, and, and expand into that sort of top tier of uh, metropolitan uh, uh, superiority, so to speak. So that's an interesting co- component, right, where you have the community spirit of Houston really trying to truly get to that sort of, you know, what is now the fourth or fifth largest metropolitan area in the country, right? Right, exactly. And at the time, it was just like the little downtown area. That was it. And now it's like, I don't know, grown 20 times as much. So it's really grown over time. And I think that the 70s was a pivotal moment for that city in particular, and probably a number of other cities in the US that I'm not as familiar with. All right. So give us a sense then of how the germ of this idea of creating the story, either in documentary form or, or otherwise, just how does that go from sort of a little seedling in your head to 
you know, the, the, the process that you're in the midst of now creating this work, uh, how long between this period of time when you found out about your mom's pro football exploits and, and now, and, and, and how does, how does this process sort of evolve over time to the point where you're like, I'm going to commit resources and time and energy to do this? Yeah. Well, it's honestly mostly a personal story as far as that goes. I think it was probably about seven years ago that I first had the thought, someone should make a documentary about this. Um, and uh, it was because I was in Houston uh, with on a pro, uh, going to a premiere of a film that I had shot, and the director was with me, and my mom ended up telling him a bunch of stories about the Houston Hurricanes, and I was just sort of listening to her talk to him, and I was like, wow, this is actually really great collection of anecdotes. And um, so that was the first time when I was like, someone should do this movie. And then I think it was probably maybe four or five years later that I was like, wait a second, I think I should be the one to make this movie because, you know, part of, part of the story is that many of the people who played on the team were lesbians. And so they don't necessarily have children. So of the people who did have children, how many of those children are actually going to end up being filmmakers? And um, it's probably not too many. So um, that was when I was like, okay, I got to get this going. So I reached out to my mom and tried to get her to help me find her old teammates because she wasn't really in touch with any of them. Um, And she's she's sort of like, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, And sort of blew me off about it for a little while. Let me stop you for a second there. Why do you think that was the case that they were sort of, I mean, was it just sort of a period of their own, of their time and they sort of moved on with their respective lives or something more that why they weren't keeping connected with each other perhaps? Well, for the first thing, like the last game that they played, um, they didn't realize it was going to be their last game because everyone sort of left that game thinking, okay, we're going to come back next season and start this over again. Um, But between the end of that season and the theoretical start of the new season, the league basically fell apart. Like most of the teams folded due to financial reasons. And um, it was very unexpected for the players. So they didn't take the time to um, say goodbye or like exchange phone numbers. It just didn't work out that way. And so um, in order to stay in touch with people, they sort of uh, a few of them stayed in touch for a little while, but it sort of everyone moved on with their lives kind of thing. But um, that's not to say that they don't, deeply care about each other on like a really base level. It's just, you know, things happen. And uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, it's, it's, it wasn't the age that it is today where everyone has Facebook. <laughs> it was, everyone has to call each other on the landline or send each other a letter and know where everybody lives. Um, so the connectivity of the time was not as conducive to staying in touch as, as it is today. But that being said, now that they are back in touch again, they're, ecstatic to be able to talk to each other again. It's it's been a really amazing experience watching them reconnect. So how do you how do you get this process sort of underway then as you uh as you realize that you have been chosen, so to speak, self-chosen <laughs> to do the story. And, and in particular <laughs> Yeah, and in, and in particular, how do you think about the narrative of this? What is or are the stories of this that sort of holds these anecdotes and this particular uh, situation in in into some kind of uh, format uh, that makes logical sense for a documentary. Right. Well, that took some uh, finding out. I mean, before, the first thing we had to do was find everybody, which took a great amount of work. We were sort of 
on Google, just looking everywhere for people's phone numbers, trying to connect names and dates and ages and all sorts of things. Um, but eventually we found a good chunk of women who played for the team. And it wasn't until talking to all of them that the story really started to shape up. Um, because I had all the anecdotes, all the cute stories, and I love all the cute stories. They're amazing. But the, the glue that holds it all together is love. And um, so the, it became very apparent from talking to everybody that, you know, even though they all had vastly different jobs, you know, some were attorneys, some were oil plant workers. It was just every kind of woman you can imagine. They came together not knowing anything about each other, except that they all wanted to play football. And little by little, they started to learn how to play this game that women had never played before. They started to overcome all the obstacles that that they faced from the public, the media, um, the finances. And through going on the road together to go and play in Oklahoma or other cities in Texas and um, just bonding over time, they eventually became what you could call a family. Um, You know, a lot of these women didn't have a vast amount of family support. Um, And this was sort of their haven for where they could be themselves. They were not judged for who they were. And if anything, they were celebrated for their uniqueness because that's another beautiful thing about football is that everyone on the team is unique and it's a game that plays to everyone's strengths, no matter how different they are. So the ultimately, very early on in uh, researching this project, the theme of the film is football is family. How are they finding out about this opportunity in the first place, right? Is it like, you know, psst, hey, kid, come here. Uh, you look like you could throw a ball. You want to play football? I mean, like, <laughs> was it with flyers on, 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 you know, telephone posts? Uh, I'm just curious as to how, because, I mean, you're setting the table, right? The whole idea of table, not uh, table, uh, Title IX, uh, the whole concept of Houston, I mean, all these things, all these sort of background forces. I'm just curious as to how football becomes an opportunity and an outlet in concrete terms for these ladies. Right. Well, the the lady who started the team, Marty Bryant, she first um, heard about the league when she read a uh, magazine article about the Toledo Troopers, which was a team up in Ohio. Yes. And actually, and, if, there's, if there's any team in the in the old National Women's Football League, it seems like that one is probably the most, uh, if you will, it's a relative statement, sort of a, a star team and or remembered, most remembered, right? Yeah. Well, they they lasted the longest for one, and they were also one of the two strongest teams in the league. Um, the other team that really competed them with them was the Oklahoma City Dolls, which were also sort of the, the nemesis of the Houston Hurricanes. Um, but um, yeah, the Toledo Troopers, they're very uh, well represented in all my research, and they they've also done a really good job of maintaining their history. So the players... Um, and uh, everyone who was there, I guess they, they managed to organize their uh, collections a little better than the Hurricanes did, for instance. And uh, they really, they, they, they're in the um, Hall of Fame up there, I believe. So they've, they've really maintained their name for themselves pretty well. Well, okay. So that, but it's, so how is the team being formed, I guess, and how are people being recruited? And I guess, what's the allure? It's certainly not big bucks, for sure. Right. Yeah. Well, um, so the uh, they placed a, an ad in the Houston Chronicle, and that's honestly how they found a good number of the players that came to the first tryout. 
Um, and the allure basically is just that these women all wanted to play football. You know, some of them have stories about how they used to play in the street with their brothers, but then when their brothers go off to high school, they're not going to play in the street with the girls anymore kind of thing. But it is just always this, this um, desire for them to play this game. And um, when, you know, when they show up, they're, they're told that they're going to get paid like seven to $10 a game or something like that. But um, that, as far as I know, has not, never happened. They never actually got paid. But uh, all their expenses were paid, like their bus rides and everything like that. Um, so I, honestly, but the allure is is simply the fact that they wanted to play football. Um, I know it's not a very satisfying answer as far as uh, a social standpoint goes, but it, that's that's it. They just it's always been part of their lives. Um, and it's also there's like a forbidden fruit kind of aspect to it. You know, um, everyone remembers sitting on the bleachers, watching the boys play and uh, waving their pom-poms. But why couldn't the girls play? No. And I think, so that's, the, see, that's, I, I, maybe there is no more uh, obvious and, and, and central reason, right? Because you're so steeped in that area around just football as, as culture, right? And, and, and completely, if you will, dominated by males. So it seems logical to at least ask the question, why not, right? And and given all the other sort of major themes that you mentioned earlier, right, it just seems like that's kind of in the air. And it's not so silly a, a proposition. I mean, I guess it's not mainstream, so to speak, or or, or uh, in aggregate, you know, the, the majority thinking, but but it, it certainly seems like there's plenty of, of nutrients, shall we say, in the soil for the idea to be not a crazy one at all. Yeah. I mean, that that's, that's it. Like women wanted to play football, same as men did. And, um, that's just something they were never given the opportunity to do. So as simple as, Hey, we got the chance to do it. Let's go do it. All right. What's this? The Arizona office of tourism spring training. Oh my God. Hey, this spring, follow your favorite baseball teams to Arizona. For Cactus League spring training, amazing weather and landscapes, exciting outdoor adventure, incredible food, Arizona. It's the perfect home base for baseball fans. Follow your favorite baseball teams to Arizona for Cactus League spring training. 10 stadiums, 15 Major League Baseball teams, and 75 degree temperatures. Ah, awesome. And all 10 stadiums are in the greater Phoenix area, all within 50 miles of the city. Meet players, get autographs before the games, and just enjoy an old-fashioned ballpark experience in beautiful preseason weather down in Arizona. Check out amazing restaurants and bars nearby, including tons of craft breweries like Four Peaks, Angel's Trumpet Alehouse, and Goldwater Brewing Company. Enjoy live music from local and national artists and explore museums featuring everything from native heritage to modern art to musical instruments from around the world and more. Arizona is known for its incredible landscapes, too, as well as thrilling outdoor adventures. So hit the road and explore Arizona's urban centers or ghost towns or artsy communities or quirky outposts. You can hike, you can bike, you can take Jeep tours, hot air balloon rides, skydiving, jet skiing, or just taking in a good old-fashioned sunset. No matter what you love to do, Arizona has you covered. Check out must-see destinations from your bucket list, like the Grand Canyon, Monument Valley, Horseshoe Bend, and even the great Old West City of Tucson. Bringing the kids along for spring training? Hey, Arizona's a fantastic destination for families, too. Family-friendly resorts and hotels offer plenty of fun for kids of all ages, from water parks to horseback rides to games and activities. 
Arizona also has tons of stuff for kids to do and see like wildlife parks and science museums, aquariums, and even dude ranches. So what are you waiting for? Plan now for your spring training getaway at visitarizona.com slash spring training. That's visitarizona.com slash spring training. Hey, and don't forget, send us a postcard. So what did your mom say as her particular reason, like uh, as to, to why? I mean, was she looking to bide some time? Was she, you know, athletically inclined and doing other things? What was, you, was there any way to sort of get to like maybe any particular reason why she was uh, specifically interested in, in going for it here? Well, my mom actually had a little bit of a history with football. She had played flag football in college when she was at Kansas, in Kansas. Um, and uh, so she, this wasn't her first experience playing football. This is her first experience playing tackle football. But um, again, the story is just that she always loved football. She always loved watching the game. And um, she actually has a pretty interesting anecdote about her uh, father, my grandfather, where he mentions at some point that um, as an employer, he always took some, he, he always saw applicants with football on their resume as having a bit of an advantage because football teaches you a great amount of teamwork. It teaches you loyalty. It teaches you hard work. Um, and people who have that experience will probably make pretty good employees. And so um, that was kind of the seed planted for my mom. So she, I think that probably was the first thought that she had, like, oh, that might be an interesting thing to do. And so um, that's Eventually, when she was in college, she found a flag football team uh, that was run through the sororities and she joined and she played flag football through the sororities. And then eventually, as she was joining the workforce, she did put football on her resume and she would walk into the interview because she has sort of a name that's not, you know, you wouldn't necessarily recognize as male or female. She would walk into the interview and the person sitting there would be like, oh, we were expecting a man. <laughs> Very interesting. And how did she, I wonder how then she described sort of that experience then and, and reframed that question, <laughs> you know, in a positive light, because I, I think it's also a, a bit of neg a negativeness to that sort of a, that, that question, perhaps. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, again, if you're looking at it through today's eyes, you definitely would be offended by that question. <laughs> um, but um, living in a time when it was, you know, that was just the world that you lived in, I imagine you develop a certain amount of thick skin to things like that. And you just sort of let it roll off your shoulder and casually move on. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I didn't, I never asked her what she said directly after that. <laughs> so when you're in the process of doing these interviews and, and, and hearing the actual stories of the women that you, you were able to find, how many, I mean, of the, of the team and the rosters that you were able to sort of discern, how, how many were you able to kind of actually locate? Um, we have located about 17 or 18 players, which uh, is a lot of them. <laughs> and in those, the course of those conversations, besides sort of the camaraderie, what, um, I got a sense that there's also some wistfulness, right? Sort of it's the kind of the best of times, but also, you know, it also doesn't, you know, it ended so quickly as you sort of described. I mean, I, I guess one question I would ask specifically is, is the idea of tackle. Right. So you're mentioning flag football and, and if there was any experience 
that these uh, these women might have had in football, it would have probably been in the of that variety that that is not sort of the blocking, the tackling, the pads, and then the real hard hitting. It does seem to me though that these women kind of knew what they were getting into because that's a different level. And historically, I guess for better or for worse, not sort of shall we say distinctly feminine uh, in expectation. That is hard hitting and and blocking and tackling and that kind of stuff. So I'm guessing, not having seen the full film. I don't know if there was either an expectation or maybe an un, an un, just an, a lack of knowledge about what that was going to be like for for most of these players. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think they all walked in realizing that it wasn't going to be uh, flag football. Like they all walked in knowing that it was going to be tackle football and that they were going to get hit. But they all do have stories about the first time that they got hit and realizing that, whoa, <laughs> that that's a little more intense than I was expecting it to be. Um, and, you know, there's stories about their first games when they got completely slaughtered by the other team and they just completely beat up. And um, but then ultimately they say, well, I don't remember anyone quitting after that first game, even though we were very embarrassed and uh, humiliated, but um, you know, I, I I guess I don't know whether they just wanted to drive forward. No one, and I guess if you if you you wouldn't sign up to play tackle football if you didn't expect to see it through. You know, you you don't walk up to practice and be like, oh, you're playing tackle football. Okay, we'll see if I can uh, make it through the first game. You, I think you're already decided, and you've dedicated yourself to this idea, um, no matter what it's going to take. In your conversations with the players and, and, and others related, what kind of sort of uh, story kind of uh, evolved from the the day-to-day, the week-to-week, the, the, the process of playing games and stuff? Because it doesn't by any means sound glamorous in any way, shape, or form. It sounds like a lot of bus rides, not a lot of cash, uh, the stadium conditions, publicity. I mean, any general thoughts about sort of the league and, and the, the quality of play and, and, and how they went about their, their day jobs and getting practices and play in? Because it seems like almost, I wouldn't call it an anonymous existence, but, you know, it certainly wasn't on television and it wasn't sort of, I, I'm guessing, widely publicized. So maybe a little bit about sort of the, the experience, I guess, of play, for better or for worse. Yeah. Yeah, well, as you said, most of these are pretty much all of these women worked full time jobs as well. So they would have to do practices in the evenings. And um, there's different stories about how often they practice. I'm sure that they uh, some of them didn't make it to all the practices, but um, they practiced on the weekdays, Monday through Friday, uh, about six to nine. And then on Friday evenings would be usually when they would come and get on the bus. So they would um, pull up probably around midnight or so, just because everyone had to get their stuff in order, finish up their jobs and everything. Everyone would get on the bus, sleep on the bus as they drove to Oklahoma, wake up in the morning and maybe get another little nap in or something before going to play the game in the evening. Um, and then because they couldn't really afford hotels all that often, you know, they would usually just get back on the bus and sleep on the bus on the way back. So um, the finances were not easy for them. They did make some money through their ticket sales or maybe placing ads in the programs and whatnot. And um, from what I could understand, it was enough money to pay for the charter bus and uh, uh, the stadiums that they would have to rent. But, uh, you know, they weren't like big stadiums. They were usually like high school stadiums, something that 
was a little cheaper and, you know, it, the stands were definitely not full by any means. They were probably like maybe a couple hundred people in the stands at any given game. So it's not like they needed a lot of seating. Yeah, the high school, the 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 the, the environment in which they're playing, not sort of, you know, top tier stadia, that kind of stuff. And I guess I'm also curious, too, as to how the I guess maybe how the finances work, because as a league, as well as individual teams, right, that that's again, through the lens of 40 years hence, right? It uh, it seems fairly hand to mouth now, again, through modern sort of lenses, right? That, you know, ticket sales and, and, and ads and stuff uh, sort of paying the freight, um, that that doesn't seem long-term sustainable, but it does also, also doesn't seem to have stopped these women from uniting and playing and, and focusing on what they needed to do on the field. Right, yeah. Yeah, and they did have to pay for some expense out of pocket. Like, they had to pay for their equipment out of pocket and uh, their food when they went on the road, they had to pay for. Um, and, you know, a lot of women who couldn't afford these things, uh, they ended up getting help from the other players. So I, I know that some of the players who had more stable jobs ended up pitching in so that they could keep the team going uh, with players who might not have been able to afford these things. Um, so it really was a team effort to keep this thing running. Um, and you know what, they weren't keeping tally of these things. It was just like, we, we, we want to play football. We got to keep the team together. That, that's it. And they did do some fundraisers too, like car washes and fish fries and things like that. So there were, there were a few ways that they raised money, but ultimately that I think they were barely breaking even if, if that, um, and that's ultimately why it only lasted a few years. Um, they tried to get more people to come to the game so they could sell more tickets by, um, getting the press to come on board, but the press was largely unsupportive of the team. Um, I know that the uh, manager says that she once sent a press release to a fella in Houston, and he responded saying that he threw it in the trash. Um, but there were a couple of people who did support the team in the press, and they would cover them as much as they could, but it's just not you know, it's tough sell to your editor, like, hey, I want to do another story about this women's football team that nobody really cares about. Um, so it's it was not easy for them. But again, because they wanted to play uh, and it was something they always wanted to do, they were willing to deal with all these things in order to make it happen for them. And uh, it, it also speaks to the level of enjoyment that they were getting out of it. You know, it's one thing to do it the first year, but then to do it for the subsequent three years and keep it, keep paying that money and keep spending that time, like your, all of your evenings dedicated to this team. That's uh definitely says something about it. I also think it's amazing too. And you're mentioning the conditions of travel and that kind of stuff. And that's, yeah, that's not, you know, that's not uh, the best way to keep one's body in shape to play at a relatively high level in a very aggressive and uh, sometimes borderline violent sport, right? I, you know, the nutrition, there's sleep. I, there are other demands that one has in their lives. I mean, I, I saw a couple of pictures and images in my research and in what you shared with me thus far. You know, uh, it looks like a mom with one of her kids on the bus, right? I mean, you know, sleeping. I mean, I, I can't imagine that this, it's got to be hard enough in a, uh, you know, uh, let's call it, I guess, a almost a semi-professional, you know, not sort of full-time job kind of environment for a male, let alone a woman who might have other uh, things in their lives going on, in particular raising children, which is uh, even more fascinating, the fact that, that these women would persevere and uh, and come together and, and, and bond so well on the field. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, 
men who play professional football, that's their job. <laughs> they, that's their entirety of their job. They'll, they'll go there, they'll train, they'll uh, work out, they're conditioning constantly, they're on the right diet. And um, it, it definitely helps raise the level of play. Um, if that's the only thing you really have to worry about. But, you know, these women are trying to squeeze it in between the many other things that they're doing. Um, some of them did have children who would have to come on the road with them or go to the practices with them every night. And, you know, those kids that just sort of became part of their lives, that was just what they did after school. They go to mom's football practice. And they, again, most of them did have full-time jobs. And um, just to, to then add the strenuous schedule of football, which is not, you know, it, it is schedule wise it is more intense than other sports. You practice more often. And then the travel on top of that, it adds a lot of strain to your, to your personal life. And um, it, it, that just speaks worlds to how much they cared about it and how much they wanted to dedicate to it. And simply put the love of the game. So in the process of putting this film together and getting everybody back together and, and, and the, the stories and the memories that sort of come back and, and all of that and, and sort of putting that sort of love theme, if you will, out there. It seems to me that there is a uh, either implicitly or potentially explicitly pioneering kind of element to all of this, right? So maybe a sense of do these women now in retrospect feel themselves as pioneers or was it more just a hey, this was just something that we were really interested in for whatever reasons. We came together. It was a unique time in our lives. And then we moved on. I sense that there's more to it than just, hey, great camaraderie over these, these, this, this period of time for the love of, of just the game. It feels to me like there was also either unwittingly or, or determined, in a determined fashion, some level of, of groundbreaking here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, for the most part, um, most of the players, that that's what they they say that they just really wanted to play, and that was it. There are a few of them that say um, that they were expecting this to become the next big thing, like this was going to be like the WNFL of the world, um, and it was going to bring them out of whatever their day jobs were, and this was going to eventually become their day job. Like they thought that this was going to go fully professional, um, but. As far as groundbreaking, I definitely don't think, for the most part, it was not on the forefront of their mind while they are doing it. But today, in retrospect, when you talk to them 40 years later, you know, perspectives have changed. And they do say, well, it's, it's amazing. I never thought of this as us being pioneers, but we were. And I didn't realize that we were making history at the time just by wanting to go out there and throw a ball around. Um, but I think that this documentary, has helped uh, change that perspective for them and um, bring a, a level of understanding to what they actually did to um, to establish a history of women overcoming boundaries in Houston and in the world. I think that my mom specifically has said that, um, you know, until I started really bugging her about this documentary, she she really just was like, oh, yeah, it's a time in my past when I did all these funny things and uh, what a hoot it was. <laughs> um, but she's like, well, I, I had never thought of it that way. And I'm glad I do now. And even though the team didn't last longer than four years, it, it's it planted seeds, you know, these little 
people who first do the first step aren't the ones who make it to the other side. And because of those people who made those first steps, those of us who came to follow are the ones who are going to accomplish their dreams. No, I think that that's that's well said. And I, and I think you also can juxtapose that against sort of the the strides that women's sports generally and the professional ranks of women's sports specifically has has made since that period of time. And yet, sa- sadly, still has has to go. Right. I mean, so for every, you know, U.S. women's national soccer team world championship. Right. There's the suing the United States Soccer Federation for equal pay, right? For every WNBA, you know, finally breaking, and we've had folks like uh, Molly Kasmer, the uh, uh, nay uh, Molly machine gun, Molly Bolin uh, from the old women women's basketball league of the late 70s, right? The, themselves pioneers. You know, the WNBA has been largely uh, break even, if that, and, and still 20 some odd years later, you know, hasn't sort of gotten to that sort of next level of of ongoing success. And, and, you know, the, a lot of questions still circle around, around that, but still, I mean, the fact that, that women in basketball and, and some other sports can actually now truly make a go of it professionally, uh, as their career. I mean, that, that in itself, I think you could make the argument and maybe you do in this film, in this conversation, and I will put words in your mouth and you can tell me otherwise that, you know, <laughs> that in some, some, some respect, right. These players, this league, this sport, this time of their lives, uh, you know, are uh, you know some some helpful pieces of of wood in the the bigger the bigger fire of progress in women in sports, right? Uh, even though the league and, and the sport itself is still, I mean, there's plenty of women's football leagues that are, that are around that out there still today, but kind of on the fringes, right? Versus that being mainstream pro sports, right? Yeah, well, I mean, I think of it as that this was the pebble, and you threw the pebble in the pond, and the ripples went all over the place. And that was, that's how it happens. You know, no one cares about the pebble anymore. It sinks to the bottom, but the ripples are there for miles. Um, and yeah, it's uh, the, the current state of women's sports in general has vastly improved. Um, and, you know, we still have a long way to go, but I think that for whatever reason, football has sort of been left behind in that whole effort. And there are, there are women playing football all over the country and the world now as it's spreading to Europe and Australia and Asia. Um, but there, there's still, there, there hasn't been a quote unquote professional league since the uh, NWFL that the uh, Houston Hurricanes played in. And um, it's, it's the only sport that doesn't have any professional league as far as I know in America. So it's 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 interesting trying to understand what our uh, cultural reservations are and what we need to do to overcome them, and also just what we need to do to make women's football a uh, business opportunity for somebody. Like um, I guess one one argument that I've come across is that the level of play is just not as high as uh, it is in men's football, which is obvious um, and. Uh, I agree with that, but part of the reason why that's happening is because we don't provide opportunities for girls to learn football at an early age. You know, boys are playing football um, all the way through middle school, high school, college, but there is no feeder system for women in football today. And um, that is something that we have the right to get based on Title IX, but it's uh, something that is being fought for now and, and has not completely entered the sphere of reality. Um, so it's, 
we'll see what happens. There are a number of fights going on right now um, with Title IX lawsuits. Um, I don't know if you've heard of Sam Gordon, but she's uh, she's trying to get a, a girls' football program going in Utah, and this is happening all over the country. So I think that change is on the horizon, and um, this is a good time for this story to be told to sort of boost that whole crusade. Yeah, you know, and I think this actually dovetails with uh, what we've heard in previous conversations around uh, women in baseball, right? So there's the pro softball thing and and the softball sort of detour that 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 women historically have been sort of guided towards. But then, you know, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League back in the 40s and 50s, which in many respects helped save and or solidify the pro baseball game generally during the war years and beyond. We still don't have so, but you know, for for and and for every one of those sports, right? There are there's absolutely ton of progress in say women's pro soccer, certainly in basketball, uh, absolutely in tennis and and some of the you know there's, there's a lot of other sports where uh, hockey, for example, right? Saying that there's a, the fledgling pro game there, and what does the NHL invest in and and wind up owning that and sort of uh, cross pollinating that? I mean amazing just within the last 10 years. But yeah, it just seems that football and baseball still haven't fully uh, either embraced or figured out a way to, uh, at the earliest levels, sort of encourage and nurture and, frankly, professionally provide opportunities for women to to continue to play and and aspire. Yeah. And you can't argue that they don't want to because that that's completely untrue. Um, there, there's absolute desire for girls to be in sports, to play baseball, to play football. Um, and I think that not providing these opportunities, aside from not having the chance to become a professional player, it also there's a there's something that team sports does in your development that ends up being really helpful in whatever career you choose and whatever life uh, you end up living. Um, and I think that that's really important that we give that opportunity to everyone, no matter what their gender. All right. Well, we also think it's important to give you the opportunity to give us a little bit of promotional uh, insight into how the film is coming together, uh, where and how you think it's going to be distributed. What What are your sort of plans for finishing it off and, and getting it out there into the world? Yeah. The audience can maybe uh, follow through if and when it uh, well, when it comes out. Well, I don't have uh, too much news on that front. Uh, we're currently in post, so we're editing what we've shot. We shot a good chunk of footage in Houston, obviously, and um, we've gone back a couple of times to get additional footage, and we also went to the European Championships of American football, women's American football, in August and shot there. So we've got a ton of footage and we're editing it together at the moment. And it's sort of um, once we have a decent cut of it, then we're going to start shopping it to a few different networks and streaming services. And um, hopefully one of them will enjoy it. I think that it's a really strong subject matter, especially for the time. And so I, I'm very confident we'll get some good level distribution. Um, and we just don't know what it is at this point, um, but I will definitely keep you posted and, uh, I, I hope everyone will go and see it. Well, certainly, I, especially in, in in Houston, but I would imagine just just generally because the story just transcends Houston. It transcends the seventies. Uh, it transcends yeah. Title Nine and, and women's sports and inequality and all that stuff. It's just it's it's a very compelling sort of confluence of stories and situations and and frankly, I'm sure some personal ones at that. I guess maybe that sort of be sort of like the rapid question: Were there any 
surprises or or things that you thought you knew going into this process uh, that maybe you were either unexpected uh, that you found to be not true or, or that were, was unexpected as they sort of came out? Uh, uh, CTE, right? Which uh, are there any lingering effects that you know the the men are going through now as as uh, concussion protocols and all that kind of stuff? Any things that sort of came out that were surprising to you in this process? Um, let me think about that for a second. Um, yeah, I didn't mean to put you on the spot, but I, I you know, you, yeah. I guess you had an I you have some ideas of sort of how this is sort of going to go about and, and come about, and then maybe you, you hear a story or two or a perception that maybe kind of puts you on a different track, or, or maybe you weren't expecting from from some of these ladies. I guess I wasn't expecting how much some of these ladies cared about this team. Because, you know, I, I enjoyed the stories that I always heard from my mom, and I'm, she enjoyed it too. But I, there are some women who, this was, this was their life. This was what they looked forward to for four years. And when the team ended, they were heartbroken, and they lost, lost meaning in their entire lives. Um, there was one woman that I heard a story about, um, her name was, uh, she, her, her nickname was Baby Hulk uh, on the team. And um, she, she lived and breathed to the team. She, everything, everything revolved around the team. And she wor- worked at a steel plant. And um, one day at the steel plant, uh, something fell, like a sheet of metal fell and uh, broke her leg irreparably. Um, and she was not able to play anymore. And it was just absolutely devastating to her. And nobody knows what happened to her. She sort of disappeared. And um, I hope she's okay somewhere. But uh, we, we really don't know. But it's just the the amount of, I guess I wasn't expecting some people to feel like this was the greatest thing that their life had ever done. We have another player who has said that this was the best thing that ever happened to me in my life. And it's 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 incredible to hear those stories and to hear that passion. And it's also really sad at the same time. I wasn't expecting to feel sad about any of this. So, I, I'm just I guess I always wonder as a semi fellow creative pursuit person. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> well, there've got to be times in this process where you go, why am I doing this, or or how am I gonna? I mean, you know, oh, whether it's monetary <laughs> or it's or it's how many hours or rabbit holes you've gone into. I, I just I'm always curious about the creative process, especially when. I don't know, it, it, success and or the end of the process does not seem obvious. Oh, yeah. Uh, I've had many of those moments <laughs> when you're just like, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? I'm spending so much time on this. It's never going to end. Like, is there even anything there? Where is it going? And I don't know. I guess I just once I started it, I felt like I had to finish it because I felt like even though I hadn't made a promise to my mom, I have sort of had. And when, also, once I started finding these women, then I, I really started to feel responsible to them to tell their story because they, they, one by one, they fell in love with me and I fell in love with them. Um, and it's just been it, that's what's driven. Well, that's what's kept me going is the fact that they kept going and it's resonated back into me. And I do feel that the fact that my mom played with these women on this team did contribute to who I am today. Maybe not directly, but indirectly um, that they're, they're also my family by affiliation. So 
it's a, uh, <laughs> there's definitely been many moments when I considered quitting and uh, thought I would give up hope, but uh, it's also encouraging hearing other people. Like every time I tell this story, uh, every time I tell somebody this story for the first time, their, their eyes light up and that's very encouraging. That would be, I think that's my advice to, uh, to anyone who cares um, is uh, don't be afraid to tell people about it, about what you're doing. Don't be afraid to ask for help because you'd be amazed at how willing they are to help you and how much their, your, your passion will generate energy in them and then bounce back to you. It's been an amazing year. <laughs> I, uh, I've learned so much and that's one of the more important things I think personally. All right. Pretty great, right? Fascinating story. And great person, too. Olivia, we uh, look forward to uh, hearing more about uh, the end result, the product, the uh, movie that we are uh, now obviously all very interested in seeing. And it's called, again, Brick House, the story of the Houston Hurricanes. And uh, if you want to keep uh, tabs on, uh, on Olivia's progress when it's uh, ready for release, how and when and where to see it, uh, when it is released, uh, you can follow uh, her and it, that process, at BrickHouseFilm.com. That's BrickHouseFilm.com. You can also follow uh, the adventures of this uh, film being made on Instagram at Brick underscore House underscore Film. Again, on Instagram, Brick underscore House underscore Film. And uh, also there's a Facebook uh, page uh, devoted to it as well. And We'll, of course, keep you abreast of what's uh, what with this film when it comes out. We'll try to give you as much information as we get it uh, from Olivia as well. And uh, if you want to uh, keep abreast of what's going on on this show, just generally, well, by all means, come on by to our website at GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Of course, you're going to find all of our 150 some odd episodes and then some uh, there for you to stream or to download, do whatever you want with them. There's a nice big fat search box there in the top. You can kind of just pick a league or a team, see if we've maybe covered it or, or, or uh, danced around the topic. And, uh, and and you'll be surprised perhaps at uh, some of the things that, that we've unearthed so far and, and plenty more to come. Uh, there's lots of great uh, photos and imagery that we found. Uh, all, all the links that you'd ever want uh, to any of the books or other forms of media or other other stuff that uh, our guests perhaps have, uh, have created to, to tell their stories. Uh, and of course, can find uh, all of our social media links there too. On, on Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. On Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. And yeah, on Facebook, you'll find a little page devoted to us as well. Uh, you want to send us some email? Go right ahead. We're at hello at goodseatsstillavailable.com. Uh, we also have a weekly email newsletter, which gives you a couple of uh, days advance notice about what we're going to be uh, presenting to you in your earbuds uh, this uh, each coming week. Uh, and you'll find a link to that on our website as well. Just uh, search around and look for uh, the convenient link that will uh, uh, ask you a couple of quick questions. And, and there you go. You'll be a part of the club, shall we say. Uh, what else? We want to say uh, hello and thank you, of course, to our good friend Jerry Payne, the good doctor uh, at Jerry Payne Productions. Thank you, sir, kindly. And uh, geez, I don't know. We just want to thank you generally for continuing to listen and support our little show we appreciate it great stories uh, yet to come this uh, this year 
plenty of stuff. We're finally getting into uh, World Team Tennis, finally. We're going to get into uh, some more Continental Indoor Soccer League stuff, more NASL, of course. We've got a whole bunch of basketball and hockey stuff. And look, we're even going to get into some one-off events and or series that weren't leagues themselves, but uh, for whatever reasons don't exist anymore. All kinds of great stuff. And, and keep your cards and letters coming. We appreciate your suggestions as well. And yeah, at some point we'll get to a Patreon kind of thing and uh, get a little monetary support and uh, and to codify some of those suggestions and some of your ideas. And, and we'd love to include those as well and maybe even a live event or two, God forbid. That's a lot on the plate, but we've... Uh, we're uh, we're ready to go. We're 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 working on it. So uh, keep us in your uh, in your mind and uh, keep us in your earbuds. And uh, we'll see you next week with another fun-filled episode. Until then, rock on, everybody. Take care. Yeah, make a old man.